Hello there, podcast fans, and welcome to episode eight of series seven of the Agile podcast, our new revamped version. This episode is a recording from Product Tank Cardiff. Jeff and I were invited to take the podcast on the road, on tour, to uh, just over the bridge for us uh, to Cardiff. And um, we recorded our Q&A session that we did as part of our podcast. The meetup was arranged for May the 4th. And as we all know, that's Star Wars Day. So Jeff and I took that as an invitation to dress up. And I even managed to squeeze in a Star Wars quiz, which we've included in this edit for you to enjoy and play along with at home. So sit back, grab yourself a drink, get your pens ready for the quiz, and uh, hopefully you enjoy our product tank Q&A session. If you're an attendee or an organizer of another meetup group and you'd like the podcast to come on tour and visit you, um, feel free to drop us a line either on YouTube or through our social media channels. Here we go. Hello, I'm Paul Goddard. I'm Jeff Watts. And welcome to the Agile Podcast, the show in which Jeff and I discuss what Agile is really all about over a pint or two in the pub. In each episode, we chat about our experiences as two Agile coaches in today's ever-changing world. So grab yourself a drink from the bar, pull up a chair, and enjoy what I'm sure you will agree is probably the best Agile pub-related podcast in the world. So we've got a good uh, good mix of topics. So we'll, uh, we'll start off with the first topic, which is... AI and machine learning is moving forward at breakneck speed. What, if any, changes do you guys see for Agile? Well, cheers, everybody. Cheers. cheers. We've got a drink. How many, so, of you, how many of you listened to the podcast already? Be honest. For the benefit of the team. That was all the room, wasn't it? That was the whole Everyone. room. Everyone. The whole room put their hand up then. No. Six. Cool. Well, maybe you'll listen more after this. Who knows? <laughs> so, yeah. So AI. So ChatGPT, I think I you're think, a big fan of this, aren't you? Well, I I play around with ChatGPT, and um, yeah, I I like it. I think it could do me out of a job pretty quickly. Definitely do you out of a job? Yeah. I think Probably. you could be hosting our podcast. Who uses it as a product person right now? A couple of us. I think I was I was working with some product owners maybe a month ago. They hadn't heard of it. We were talking about um, personas, user journeys. We were talking about um, story mapping and all those kinds of things. And I said, well, boy, just you've got, as a product person, you've got far too much stuff to do for the hours that you have in a week. So you need to, you need to get people around you. You need to help. You need to prioritize your time. You need to be more ruthless with what you do, what you don't do. So I, I said, right, let's just stop for a minute. Go away for like an hour and play with chat GPT, get it to write you some personas, get it to write you some stories, get it to write. And they came back and they were amazed. They said, I don't need my business analyst anymore. I think it's, it's quite worrying, I think. You're worried by it? I am worried by it, yeah. I think I'm more scared. Didn't the, um, some senior guy at Google just leave his yeah. job? Due to the worries about AI and how, how fast it's being developed and what it's being developed for. Hmm. I think for good or for, for for bad. Until the point. So at the moment, machine learning, as I, as far as I understand it, is and from what I can see, is basically just reliant upon what humans have created. So it's trawling Jeff Patton's book on story mapping. It's trawling, 
you know, Marty Kagan's book. It's trawling all this, these articles and posts and things, and it's just consolidating them and trying to interpret them and give you information very, very quickly. So in terms of access to data, it should be amazing. It should be really quick, and it should be able to get rid of a lot of the mundane stuff. But people have still got to create. Yeah. It, does, it, does it solve complex problems? Maybe. Can it, can it solve a complex problem? But does it innovate yet? Not yet. Maybe. I worry because human beings are inherently lazy, and sometimes that's a good thing, just not with my teenagers, <laughs> I worry that we'll get a sort of premature convergence. I worry that we'll have... Oh, let me put it this way. If I was, if I was a, a product owner and I was trying to think of features for my product and I used AI and it would go away and search me some personas and some stories and things and it could oh this is what people need this would be good this is how you prioritize it and you go and do the same thing then we'll end up with the same answers mm -hmm. and we trust that you know, kids now are just doing copy and paste I did a bit of, I did a bit of playing around for a workshop I was doing recently on conflict so people wanted to get better at navigating conflict within their teams and stuff and um, I wanted to see what other conflict models were, were out there that I hadn't heard of that I would normally do. So I thought this is a good opportunity for me to go outside of my normal script. And it came up with the circle of conflict. I think it was guy Christopher Moore or someone like that. I thought oh, that's interesting. I said, so give me an example that, you know, create an exercise where I could introduce a group to the circle of conflict um, and give them some scenarios where they could practice using this model for in improving their conflict resolution skills or something like that. And it came up with a, you know, 10 minutes introduce this, 10 minutes set them this exercise, give them an example of someone keeps turning up late to their meetings or not contributing or doing their tasks or whatever, and then go through the various aspects of the circle of conflict. I thought, well, that's cool. But it turned out it gave me the wrong... I aspects of the circle of conflict. <laughs> so there are five, I think, something like data conflict, interest conflict, but it was talking about things that weren't part of it. It got confused. It gave me the wrong answer. Yeah. Now, if I hadn't fact-checked because I didn't want to look like a prat, mm. I would have looked like a prat. Yeah. I, thi I think, I'm keen to um, know what everyone else thinks, but um, rather than just me and you, but I, I think there's certainly in the training, training industry, which I know we're both involved with, I think there is certainly for, for more base levels of training, agile training, I think it won't be too long before you'll be able to get that through more of a chat AI mm. solution. That's not that far away, I wouldn't have thought. I don't think it'll be long until um, people are downloading that into a nice human-looking Android who can deliver it. I was, I was marking coursework this week, and it's like, and we we strictly say don't do not cut and paste. You know, you, this has to be your own words. But would I be able to tell now if it was you know, chat generated? So you could have a plagiarism checker in there. But it would it be marked as plagiarized if it was developed by AI or through Chat GPT? I was talking to an SEO person about this and how Google are changing their algorithms now and looking for something like that so that they're, they're putting less emphasis on on content that looks like it's been ai generated and you can kind of tell if you look at linkedin posts you can kind of tell the ones that they've put through chat gpt can't you mm. at the moment um 
and so now they're relying more on customer reviews mm. rather than okay um long form content so it's going to change it should it should reduce cognitive bias to a degree maybe but not well it'll probably reduce my cognitive bias as a product person but it's still just a collection of human cognitive bias at the moment we've got are you t time boxing this for us jamie as well that's fine. That's fine. We're quite interested, rather than just Jeff and I sitting here monologuing, uh, we'd like to get you some of your um, thoughts as well. So we've got some microphones that should we can record from. Um, would any, if anyone would like to, to chip in with some thoughts, we can pass these around and uh, feel free to tell us your name and you'll be part of the podcast. You won't be on video, though. You won't be on video. Just for, the video is just for me and Jeff. <laughs> but... Uh, any comments from? Yeah, we have a, I have a, a gentleman with this back, hand up. Thank you very much. Hi. Uh, Hi. It's just a. The problem might not be there now because the training set that's been used is pretty much all from human-generated stuff. But when the training set starts to include information, uh, you know samples that come from chat gpt or other things where do you think how would do you think is that going to lower the quality or increase the quality of what you get back out of it mm, is it is it clever enough to know what's good information and what's bad information i think it will learn quicker than humans learn but but is quality subjective i don't know when it comes to learning content I, th I think it will. I think particularly in our in our industry, there's so many different uh, differing opinions on how to do things, on how to what strategy looks like, and how to approach it. I can't remember the last so time I taught anything as truth, no, or fact, or correct. Everything I do now seems to just be different gradients of nuance, stories and experiences, and it? context, and I think. I don't, I don't, to be honest, I don't, I'm not clever enough, I don't think, to really know enough. And I suppose my, 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 my worry is that I won't see it coming. What do you think, Jamie? You asked the question. Well, I think the big part with Agile is, a lot of, like you said, is down to interpretation. Do you know what some people deem as good, other people deem as, let's use the word wrong, right? Uh, but I think that will be the difficulty in getting people and understanding that interpretation of what does good look like then as well? Um, and what does, does good look like in an AI world versus humans who have got real experience in that situation, being able to learn from their mistakes as opposed to just outputting information. I'll tell you what, so a conversation we had today, so I was working with a group of people today, they weren't all product people, but some of them were. And I was talking a lot about experimentation and running good experiments. Because we can all run an experiment, but if we don't know what we're trying to learn and we haven't got good benchmarks, we haven't got good metrics, we don't know whether we're making a success or not. And so I was trying to encourage them to run good experiments. Now, I think that's quite hard for humans. I think it would be much easier for, for machines to run better experiments with a lot of data. And I think you could use, I don't know what you would call them, but sort of simulated humans you could create a lot of simulated human responses and get some significantly 
in-depth A-B tests rather than having to involve real humans mm. to get an indication of whether an experiment is a success or not. And I think that would help because that's that's something that I find a lot of product people really find quite difficult is actually running good experiments. Mm. Have you tried being coached by it yet? Yeah. I, I actually recorded... Not great. Um, <laughs> it wasn't bad. I'd probably give it a four out of ten. So... Basically, it was just too mechanical. So I, I, I positioned it. The prompt was, "You're, you know, you're a, a highly qualified coach with the ICF. I want you to coach me um, along the the core um, the core competencies of the ICF." Uh, and so it was it was kind of good. It it did. It just sort of skimmed over some of the the probably more important topics of the mm. conversation and was very mechanical about focusing on the competences. Mm. So it might it might be like um, a kind of equivalent of someone who's just taken their driving test and is out for the first time and they're really mechanically mm. going through all the motions because they haven't, yeah. But that'll get better. No doubt. Any other thoughts, opinions, comments over here at the front? Jordan. There's here it comes. Nice, into the microphone, please, Sophie. Yeah, all good? Yeah. I think so. Hopefully. Um, the speaker's going that way, so we, <laughs> <don't> <laughs> yeah, we yeah. can't hear it. So um, as a product designer, um, I very much approach things from a human level, and I try and base it on thinking, feeling, and doing. Now, I hope there is called AI because it can think. I'm not really relying on the feeling path because, as you were just saying, then experiments, we can run them. You know, I've seen them run already, A-B test, and it can answer in a very mundane sort of human way that implies it can do it but then problems can't be answered from purely a thought way because there might be a feeling introduced into that. So ultimately, that's my sort of thought on it is that feelings will dictate a lot of stuff that people make a choice on. So until I can do that, then that's sort of my grasp of it because, you know, you can put a button anywhere else in the world, but if it's in the wrong place, that's going to make you angry or happy or sad, or, you know, whatever. Hmm. So until I can do that, then that's my sort of approach on it. Do you think there's any sort of aspect around there that it can do that soon? So I don't think it will necessarily be able to, well, maybe it will, but yeah. <laughs> I'm not banking on it being able to feel very quickly, but I am banking on it being able to fake feeling. Yeah. And so all of you as product people, some of your customers will be sociopaths. <laughs> and what do they do? They fake human feeling. All right. So you are already marketing to AI. <laughs> you are already selling to AI. So the strategy's there. Um, oh, there's an, uh, for me, there's another nuance there is, well, who are your, most of your customers going to be in the future? Is it actually humans or is it actually robots? Mm. Do ro will robots want have wants and needs? We're just one step closer to Skynet, aren't we, Jeff? I don't know because I haven't seen the film. You'll I'm relying on Bender from Futurama, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, at the back. At the back. My concern uh, about kind of chat GPT and, and the AI is just the confidence with which it's wrong. And it, it you know... Have you met Nigel Baker? <laughs> it, you know, we all know that we can all be right and we can all be wrong. But when, when, when chat GPT tells you something and it's wrong, it tells it to you in a way that has such confidence that it's terrifying. Yeah. And I just, I fear for product people that if we sort of jump onto this bandwagon too soon, we just end up with the worst possible product ever because mm. it's just based on a load of complete errors but with immense confidence mm. um so for example apparently i 
according to ChatGPT, have a PhD from Cambridge University. <laughs> and it told me that with uh, immense confidence. I've never been to Cambridge <laughs> in my whole life. So that's, that's I got it to write my obituary. It wasn't too bad. It's a bit dark. It's a bit dark, Jeff. Give me a light. <laughs> it wasn't too bad. It could be a lot worse. Probably better than if my wife wrote it. <laughs> so I think there's great potential with AI. My concern is that governance um, and lawyers may not be able to react or adapt fast enough via things like regulations or be able to respond properly to the advances that are currently going on. How do you think they should respond when AI is now for public use um, rather than specialists who were using it more previously? Wow. Feel like we're politicians that's, now. That's that's poli <laughs> p political minefield, surely at this point, isn't it? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I all I can fifth. do really is look through the lens of a parent and think, you know, I've got teenagers and I've got toddlers, and I think, how is this? So, you, you, depending on what channel you, you know, you you get your feeds from, you yeah. can have really pessimistic, the world's going to end, <laughs> AI's dreadful, type messages. But I was reading one the other day about you know, the, the prospect of every child having their own AI as a, as a, like their real imaginary friend, if you like, and it being like, it painted a really nice picture of them having someone there for them, empathising with them, being that, you know, that no one's going to be excluded, no one will be bullied. You know, they'll all have their own AI, and it'll be able to do things with them and for them. And I don't know. I, I think there's there's huge potential for things like that. Um, regulation. I don't really rely on regular. I don't think I rely on regulation for many things. <laughs> I don't know. Be careful how you phrase that. <laughs> I don't. I don't. When I say I don't rely on it, I don't think it's going to save me. Mm. Yeah, can do. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe AI lawyers won't. I did get ChatGPT to write a contract for me the other day, and to the point of it being almost having lack of humility. It was it was very explicit in saying, I am not a legal expert. You should get this checked over by a proper professional. Mm. Um, but it was a low risk contract. And the one that the lawyer actually, that I paid thousands of pounds for, I couldn't read. So I actually asked it to write me something along those lines that I could actually read as a normal person. Um, and then I asked someone who's got a leg legal training to say, how bad is this? And they said, it's not bad. How was that, Jamie? Did that answer your question? Really you think so? Uh, so <coughs> in essence, we're going to rely on ChatGPT to play with children and write contracts. <laughs> 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 Great, thank you very much. Uh, move on to the, to the next topic now. Uh, so the next topic, I think, is one you've both probably... LinkedIn about quite a few times and and that so probably one that's that's quite close to both of you but agile versus scale agile. Paul loves this topic, doesn't he? Uh, <laughs> who, who asked this question? Where did this one come from? Is this you again, Jamie? No, it wasn't. I think it's <laughs> Helen. I don't know if she's you. Oh, I see. People threw a question. Yeah, threw the threw the question, threw the grenade, and, and then walk away. Yeah. <laughs> well, because it, that's that's a that's a, from, that's a whole debate in itself, but um. We have 15 minutes to solve this one. <laughs> no, we can solve it. What do people think? What? What? Well, what do we mean by scared, scaled agile for a start? 
What do you think? Hands up all the introvert. No, ha um, hands <laughs> up. Hands up who likes scaled agile. Well, who's doing it? Who's doing scaled agile at the moment? No one. No one. I have to be honest that I don't know what it is. Don't know there's a need. You don't know what it is. Nope. I'm not sure. I really know. Apart from it's always a mess. <laughs> it's it's never easy. So I've never, I've never taught scaled agile. Um, my, uh, I don't know how many years ago this was now, but myself, Andrea Tomasini and Dave Snowden tried to create something that would be a viable and coherent alternative. Because I think I can speak for Paul. I can't speak for Paul on many things, but I think I can speak for him on this one, which is we both think that things like safe are a waterfall way of doing agile. They're not, you don't walk the talk. Um, and for anything to have any credibility, it needs to have integrity. And I don't think the scaled agile approaches that are there at the moment have integrity. So I think the closest you can probably come to that it, it would be less or something like that. Yeah. But for me, it's not about scaling agile. It's about scaling coherence. So there are times in your organization, there are places in your organization when actually agile doesn't make sense. There are times when Scrum makes sense. There are times when Kanban makes sense. There are times when other things make sense. So being able to scale one thing across the organization to me doesn't make sense. That wouldn't be agile. It wouldn't be contextual because that's how I think, that's what I think when I think agile. Um, so for me, it's I, I, I started playing around with this phrase, um, standardizing autonomy, which hasn't caught on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the thinking behind it was, can we scale the thought process of how to apply different approaches in different contexts? And I think that's what we need to scale. Not a method, mm. not a framework, not even agile principles. We don't need to scale those because they're not always relevant. Can we scale a consistent and coherent approach to dealing with different contexts? Because then we can have alignment. That's that's kind of my scale. That's my thoughts on scaling. I know um, some of you might know Jem Jalal. So if you're on LinkedIn, you might be familiar with Jem. He's another trainer in our community, and he he put this was a, a, a year or so ago, maybe more. He put a post out there to say um, just asking for safe um, practitioners. Or and developers to get in touch because he wanted to kind of gather success stories. He, want, he said, just tell me if it's working, tell me. And he got no replies. Nobody could actually tell him. And I, I, that's, that's the same is true of me. Unti until somebody comes to me and tells me a successful, we did it, it worked, it was, it was brilliant adoption of safe. I'm, I'm, I'm reserving judgment. Yeah, well, I, I, don't, I don't believe it. The, the most successful scaled implementations that I've seen have just been, it goes back to what we said about experimentation. They just didn't know what, how to do it. They tried 10 things, 10 things didn't work. They tried another 10 things. They, they tweaked different things and some of those things worked and they stuck and they carried on doing that. And they can't really put it down to a particular methodology that they followed and they scaled slowly. It didn't happen quickly. 
so my advice would just be be patient and uh and be make be, make it your own don't don't assume that just following the textbook will will give you success it probably won't any other thoughts from anyone else What exactly is scaled agile? It's an attempt at trying, I think, it's an attempt at applying agile approaches to the organization rather than a project or a product. It's, a, it's an attempt at trying to institutionalize agile at the enterprise level. Uh, and so there are big methodologies that could fill this screen of you know what an agile PMO should look like, what agile HR should look like, and um, how agile teams should, the hierarchies should work, and you know, who should be in charge of this, and how should they report to, and how, how what they should be on the board, and things like this. Um, and so, safe is the most talked about one. It's a quite a polarizing mm. one for many many reasons. I didn't realise that Dean Leffingwell had sold fifty one percent of it. Is he? to private equity. Oh. So he's taken a massive pay payout and uh, it's now venture capitalists oh, okay. who are just churning out the profit. Um, no, I learned that the other day. He's done all right out of it. Oh, he's done very well out of it. Yeah. Yes. But there's, there's yeah multiple different approaches to it, um, uh, multiple different uh, styles and leadership approaches to it. I, I think it's quite that's quite a broad term scaled agile that could mean for me to me that could mean two teams working on something to me that's it's it's perhaps not scaled to the organizational level but it's still getting bigger okay scaling rather than scaled but yeah um i'd probably prefer the term coordinated mm. aligned but we went for the term organic agility with a little a because it's not about being agile it's about being sensible, appropriate, coherent. And our, our it's not about making our organizations agile, it's about making our organizations resilient. Because change is happening. And if you institutionalize something and you standardize something, you automatically become less resilient to change. Someone else has got the mic over there, they're ready to question? go. Uh, yeah, I, I, so, um, Dave Thomas, one of the original authors of the Agile Manifesto, has a fantastic series of rants. You can find them <laughs> on YouTube. They all seem to be good at ranting. These Agile Manifesto people, don't yeah, they? Oh yeah. Well, well. So, and, and his like his his whole thing is about how um, agile was meant to be an adjective. It was meant to describe a way of working, and that it then got turned into a noun because you can sell a noun. Mm -hmm. Okay, you cannot sell an adjective. And one of the things that that really grates him is this attempt to take what was meant to be a simple way of working for a team at a team level to reduce complexity mm. and that the attempt to try and apply that at an organizational level is almost an, an anathema to the even to the very concept of agile and I was just wondering like how do you f i mean obviously you are both people who obviously you have you know careers livings that are based on selling big a agile and i was just wondering whether you had thoughts on on his rants and whatever yeah so 
our careers aren't all about selling big AHL, but yeah, you're right. We operated in that field. Yeah. And so to some degree we're complicit in that. Um it's we can we can we can sleep at night because we tell ourselves that we have principles. <laughs> Would AI agree with that? I don't know. Huh. I think I think as well it was um and we could get into a whole certification rant here if we, if we wanted to, but um, that was seen very much as a, and I think it had success in the early days uh, just by, it was a way in to organizations. It was a way to introduce an idea um, in, a, in a slightly more um, deliberate, attractive way, because we can, put, we can put badges on these things and we can make it, it, it stands out. I think that's been slightly manipulated and, and to, to uh, uh, vastly um, to a lot of organisations making a lot of money out of that. Um, yeah, I, I think my integrity, I think I still very much position it when I'm training that it's um, trying to encourage people that it's a journey that they're going on and it's not all going to be, um, you know, kind of happy days tomorrow. There's a lot of hard work involved. And I, I it'd be being realistic, I, I think I'm it, Agile's probably Agile's worst salesman now, um, because I generally say, you know, a lot of you are not going to be able to do this because your organisations aren't set up for it, and it's going to be really hard. And I'm sorry about that because it's going to be it's not going to work. I'm much more comfortable saying that now. I perhaps wasn't before, but I, I perhaps a lot more comfortable now in saying it. It's. I think it's always played in. T it was almost inevitable. I think it's inevitable because it never really tackled the insecurities of the people that were going to have to support it. Yeah. So what I've been working on this week is, is agile leadership. So how can you lead an organization that wants to increase its agility and resilience? And <clears throat> I don't know whether any of you are familiar with this sort of concept, but you get the people who are doing the work bitching about the leaders who are you know, not supporting it, they're not providing the leadership, they're not providing the strategy or the guidance or the prioritization, they're constantly asking them to do too many things and change their minds. And you get the leadership bitching about the teams that just want to do retrospectives and hug each other and never really actually do anything, they just argue about estimates. And you have this complete lack of empathy throughout the organization. And from a leadership perspective, developing empathy for the people who are faced with the prospect of tackling really complex work with systems and processes that were built for ways of working in a very different environment in many cases. And uh, all human beings are geared to try and avoid uncertainty because of anxiety. But also you don't really get a huge amount of empathy from the teams for the difficult position that leadership are in. Because they're often driven by stakeholder demands and often challenges that they're legally not even allowed to disclose. So trying to develop that empathy. As a leader of an organization, I've got to where I am because of what I've done in the past. Now, to remain relevant, is what I've done in the past still going to work? Is there still a place for me? And if there is, am I actually capable of being that kind of leader? And when faced with that insecurity, generally people go into self-preservation mode. That involves denial, it involves obfuscation, 
it involves hiring Accenture. <laughs> and there's logical, rational reasons behind it. They're human reasons. And I don't, I, 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 so I, and I don't, I don't think they even m imagined what was going to happen with that two pieces of paper that they managed to agree on in that ski resort. Mm. I can't believe they even imagined this was going to happen. Because if, if they had, they would have bought shares in different companies. All right, but <coughs> if I were to criticise them, I think it would be to their naivety. They just thought, this is a much better way of doing things. It's a no-brainer. People will naturally do this. <laughs> Rather than thinking, how can we, and, and this is where the scaled agile frameworks have seen a gap. Mm. And they said, oh, we know what you're anxious about. You're anxious about not knowing what's going to happen. You're anxious about not having control. You're anxious about being you know, the unpredictability. We can give you that and still be agile. Is is that not just repackaging good organisational processes and sticking agile as a label on top of all of that? If that was the pro if that was the case, I wouldn't have a problem with it. Mm. In my experience, it's c it's packaging not bad organisational practices, but out of date organizational practices that were good in s in previous circumstances but aren't as relevant now now i've sort of come to terms with the fact that those organizations that go through the motions and send out mixed messages they'll just die all right and that's fine beth you've got a mic coming your way mike next. just repeat that with the microphone this time uh, i'm actually fascinated by the the subject itself because now Agile is a matured framework that has been going on for some years now. And knowing what we know now, what does not work? Uh, earlier on, you touched on a very interesting point that if there is anything to be scaled, it has to be the context that we find ourselves in day in, day out. If you had to rewrite Agile again, how would that look like today for the today's relevance? The simple answer from my perspective is going to sound like a sales pitch, but I don't make any money out of it. So um, we would rewrite it as organic agility. That was the attempt at doing that. It was an attempt at creating organizational resilience you know, by growing autonomy and an interdependent culture. So taking Kinevin, taking sense making, taking versatile leadership and, a, and getting a consistent approach to, to different contexts throughout the organization and by visualizing the culture and the changes in the culture that are that, that are instigated through small behavioral leadership changes. Mm. So that that's that's we would have done that earlier. Um and perhaps we'd have hired some people in marketing. <laughs> and I guess you would have not have titles such as product owners, for sure. Hmm. That's a separate question. Um because I'm not actually sold on the fact that the names of the roles have been as big a problem as some people think. I'm not sold on that. I can, I can empathise with it, and if I wanted to, I could convince myself that's the case. But I'm not convinced it is. I don't. Yeah, at, at risk of sound being controversial, I don't have a massive problem with product owner as a, as a the title of a role. Um, I've got some problems with some other ones, but not so much that one. Um, to come back to your point about what would what would I write differently? I, I'd, the stuff I talk about now is all pretty much based around complexity. That's the, and 
complexity and uncertainty and rather than just selling what they sh what people should do is to encourage people to be much more comfortable with looking at the types of problems they're trying to solve that's that for me that was the missing the missing part of the conversation 10 15 years ago think 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 deeper the the Kinevin stuff think deeper about the types of problems you're solving and then you'll have a better understanding about how to tackle them rather than just throwing the same process at it pub quiz come and join us so uh those of you um recent listeners to the pod uh, podcast will know that we uh every now and again we do a quiz and just for a little five minutes now we've got before we start the second half we've got pub quiz pub quiz so grab yourself a pen if you've got one somewhere the, uh, if you haven't if you haven't use your phone and write your answers in your phone this is the, this is the part of the pub quiz um where i embarrass jeff for his lack of knowledge on films. So, of course, today is Star Wars Day. Star Wars quiz. It's only six questions, but you get two points for each question. There's two points on offer for each question, right? Okay. Here we go. Listen in. Question one. These are Star Wars quotes. Oh. Right? We need for, there's, two there's two points for each question. Put one point for who said it, which character said it. Second point for which film did it come from? Oh, right. And to keep to try and help you out, these are episodes one through six only. Okay, one through six only. So that's the, the prequels, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, okay, yeah. Jeff, right. Here we go. Number one. Who said this? And which film was it from? Why you stuck-up, half-witted, scruffy-looking nerve herder? <laughs> You can carry on if you want, if you know the rest of it. Why are you stuck up half witted, scruffy looking nerf hooded? Don't look at the answers, Jeff. Don't I'm not cheat. looking no, at the answers. No cheetah picks on my quiz. All right. Question two. I retransmitted it to Coruscant, just as you requested. Then we decided to come and rescue you. I retransmitted it to Coruscant, just as you requested. Then we, then we decided to come and rescue you. Question two. Oh, what's his name? <laughs> <laughs> Question number three. I'll try not to do it in the accent because that will probably give away. Um, you would prefer another target, a military target? Then name the system. I grow tired of asking this, so this will be the last time. Where is the rebel base? Mm. Some great acting there, that was, wasn't it? That was me that was doing that. <laughs> I won't repeat that, but you should have got that one. That was easy. Uh, number four. Yes, I said closer. Move as close as you can and engage, the, engage those Star Destroyers at point black range. Do that again, better. Yes, I said closer. Move as close as you can and engage those Star Destroyers at point blank range. That's question four. Question five. Put Captain Solo in the cargo hold. Put Captain Hold Solo on. in the cargo hold. Give me a Hold on. Um, Come on, Star Wars nerds. And finally, number six. He was deceived by a lie. We all were. It appears that the Chancellor is behind everything, including the war. After the death of Count Dooku, Anakin became his new apprentice. Hashtag spoiler alert. <laughs> 
He was deceived by a lie. We all were. It appears the Chancellor is behind everything, including the war. After the death of Count Dooku, Anakin became his new apprentice. Maximum of 12 points on offer. Pub quiz! Straight into the answers. Here we go. Uh, why are you, to question one, why are you stuck up half-witted, scruffy like a nerve herder? Who said it? Princess Leia. And what film was it from? The Empire Strikes Back. Very good. What number is that? What number film is it? Five. Yeah, number okay. five. Are you just writing numbers here? Yeah? I just put five. <laughs> I just put numbers. You just put random numbers between one and six. Uh, I transmitted it to Coruscant just as you requested. Then we decided to come and rescue you. Anakin from Attack of the Clones. Very good. Very good, Jamie. Star Wars nerd over here to my right. You would prefer another target, a military target, to then name the system. I grow tired of asking this, so this will be the last time. Where is the rebel base? Yes, it is Grandma talking from which film? A New Hope, yes, very good. That's number three, Jeff. No, four, sorry, number four. Number f question number four, I said closer. Move as close as you can and engage those Star Destroyers at point-blank range. Who said that? Yeah. Correct, Lando Calrissian said it. Jamie got it wrong. What film was it from? Return. Very good. You're not Googling these, are you? Definitely not. <laughs> put Captain Solo in the cargo hold. Let's go to Jeff first for this. Jeff, who put Captain Solo in the cargo hold? Who said that? I wrote that blob thing. That blob thing? The one who captured Princess Leia. Jabba no. the Hutt. No, it wasn't Jabba the Hutt. No. Who was it? Oh. Boba Fett. Yeah, what film? Very good, yes. Boba Fett and the Empire Strikes Back. He was deceived by a lie. We all were. It appears that the Chancellor is behind everything. I think I got this right. Do you? It included the war. After the death of Count Dooku, Anakin became his new apprentice. Who said it? Well, it's out of two. You've got to go with one, Jeff. I wrote Qui-Gon Jinn. Is that right? What, what film? Oh, I, I put three. I don't know what that is. It was, <laughs> it was film number three. Okay. Was but it, it wasn't Qui-Gon Was it Obi-Wan? Yes. Oh, it was one of the two. You got it wrong. Obi-Wan Kenobi from Revenge of the Sith. Pop quiz! So, yeah, topic number three. What trait in product managers do you see the least yet value the most? I think I was going to say something about, like, being ruthless, like, like, like being hard and ruthless about making decision-making. But then I think, think it's also about are the people that I'm, I'm coaching and speaking to, are they really product managers? And are they, do they really have that, that, that empowerment to make those decisions? Um, I think some of them could. Um, I think they could be a lot more bold in what they do and, and what, they, what they believe in. But they generally fear that it will in some way that be um, overruled or changed. They know what they want to do, but they don't have the conviction. So do they need assertiveness? Yeah, and belief, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'd say. So well, I, I, I talk to product people about humble assertiveness. Okay, so trust, trust, your, trust your gut, but have a certain element of self-doubt or humility. I might be wrong because we might be wrong. I'm told a lot I'm wrong, so I just assume I'm wrong. But have that assertiveness about it. I, for me, it would probably be around, it begins with P, it would either be psychology or politics, and I'd probably somehow merge the two. Because I think 
product managers underestimate the ability, or no, not the ability, they underestimate the need to be political around people and understand how decisions are made and understand how people are influenced and understand how minds are changed and understand the, the, the parts that, that go together and need to be molded. Mm. Um, making the right decision is great, but being able to bring other people on board with that decision and get that decision to land and sometimes make it look like it was someone else's decision, not yours, is quite a quite a good skill to have, I think. Mm. I, I think whoever asked the question is a great question, but wouldn't it be br great to actually have a an example of what exactly that archetype of product manager, uh, you know, what it has in its capabilities to be ruthless um, and 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 win because that's what it's all about and sometimes political people yeah share different views different perspectives but you can't be all thing to all people nope. because the outcomes are not gonna you know be the outcomes you want the desirable outcomes are gonna be watered down so what would be typically a good example of product manager that has you know value in its own forefront for the business but also for the users would you be able to give us one so are you looking for an example of a person uh, yeah or a scenario whereby this question fits in okay so just to add to that um so when you're given an example of a trait in the scenario mm. right it, it, i think it's important for us to know the scenario because um being ruthless like you said, it could be a good thing in one environment, but not really a great thing in another environment. So if we could have that balance also, it would help. So balance is definitely important. Um, I, when, when, when we say ruthless, we're not going, talking about going around just being a dick to everyone, all right, and not listening. But ruthless in the context of, I'm not here to please everyone. I'm not here to make friends. I'm not here to compromise. I'm here to make the right decision for the product. And always having at the front of their mind, what is the right thing to do for the customers, for the users, for the product? Mm -hmm. And sort of coming to Baff's point there, well, what, what goes into being ruthless? Well, there's an element of self-assurance. You know, I don't need other people's approval. I don't need people to like me I need people to respect me and I need to be able to live with the fact that I've done my job properly because a lot of the you don't get instant gratification as a product owner it's quite delayed right if you get it at all so you it's very it's a lagging there are lagging indicators in your success right? you can have some intermediate ones but ultimately you don't really know the results of your decisions for quite a while so if you if you crave that instant feedback, that instant growth, you'll make substandard decisions. So having that sort of self-confidence, that patience, a certain level of assertiveness, so I don't doubt myself too much, but I have a certain level of humility that I might be wrong. 
then I can be confident to be ruthless when I'm prioritizing, when I'm cutting features, when I'm killing a product, when I'm putting it out to pasture. I'm not emotionally attached to it. I'm making the right decision for the business, the product, the users. And that, that's just talking about ruthlessness, which is just one aspect. You know, when we're talking about you know, understanding how people make decisions, there's a very fine line between influence and persuasion and manipulation. And while you might not think that you have the power to manipulate in your role, you probably do. And being very mindful about that. Now, all of those things, making decisions, there's decision fatigue. Yeah, we get tired of making decisions, which is why I just came out wearing black today. I couldn't be bothered to make the decision about what to wear, all right? Just reduce the pressure. There's change fatigue. There's all sorts, of, uh, being ruthless takes energy out of you. Negotiating, listening to stupid users all the time, all right, takes energy out of you. So I'll throw another one out there, and I know it says just one, but I'll throw another one out there, which is resilience. I think I've seen a far too many product people burn out because they don't take care of themselves for the long run. They can quite easily fill their calendars, fill their weeks for months on end with meetings and reviews and demos and surveys and focus groups and all sorts. And they don't take care of themselves they don't have the resilience for the long haul. And product development, yes, we're iterating and we're releasing quickly and often, but it's a long game. <laughs> I think I think related to um, what, what what Baff was saying was also uh, that there's an element of, of versatility as well that you're um that you you can adapt to there'll be times as product as a product manager when you need to be I'm sorry that you know, you, you might all want to do something different here. Um and I can think of a recent example of a product owner I was working with that had to make a very tough decision to delay a release of a product. The customer, um, customer, it wasn't ready. The customer was was unsure, but yet on on their own side in the, within their organisation, there was a lot of pressure and revenue pressure to actually launch and 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 get the product live. And that product owner had to make a very difficult decision, despite all the internal stakeholders wanting to push the button and say go. She had to say, "Sorry, it's not going to happen." There'll be times when you have to be hard and f hard on that, but there'll be other times when you might want to stand back as a product owner, or product manager, and let and see what the room's telling you, and see what what people think, and go. You want to go with that that momentum that you're building within a team, for instance, on a on a design decision about how to design or how to adapt that product differently. So I think I do. I, I see probably a lack of that. Um, ruthlessness like Jeff talked about but I think I saw I, I, on the flip side to that I see product owners that, that generally just want to have everyone on their side more and everyone um, agreeing with them I think it's harder sometimes to be the one that doesn't agree that's what I, th I see a lack of I think so to that point almost I've recently learned the power of an honest no mm -hmm. so spend a lot of time fielding requests from many stakeholders, some really good ideas, some less than good ideas. And you can spend a lot of time considering them and, and flowering up why it's something not to go with. But I've learned that just being able to say 
no upfront cuts a lot of the crap basically mm. and it means that you can move forward and really focus on what you need to focus on and i found the audience for that has been quite receptive and it's actually built respect and open communication i'm getting more ideas from them mm. and just your ideas on that what's your well, i'm interested in a little bit more context there so before you turn the mic off is it just a simple no or is it a no because or is it a um, so I think the most recent one was I had a customer service um, person come to me. They had done a really great presentation. They had measures of success and basically done my job for me. But the problem was is that they wanted to improve a contact form on a site, which helped them. But we have very limited resource for those kind of changes. Users don't really use it. So it just wasn't something that would make the roadmap. So given the considerable number of hours that she had spent preparing this document I had to kind of either no but really good <laughs> nice try was really good, was really but did you explain the whole the strategic reason why it wasn't oh, going to yeah, make definitely. okay yeah I think that's what you need to do yeah because otherwise they don't understand your perspective on it right and if if they bought into that strategy if they if they understand the logic behind the decisions that are being made, then having that explanation is is really powerful, and knowing straight away what you thought about that that, that honest no, is builds a lot of respect. I, I can respect that. If uh, but I've heard people say don't give a reason, don't give an explanation, because then you just open yourself up to argument, and they'll try and convince you otherwise. I don't really buy that. I think if the reason is solid, if you're not just fobbing them off, I think the explanation has gravitas and grounding and, and validation, then people will see that. And if they're not aware of it, then it's the opportunity for the conversation about the strategy. So it doesn't become me saying no to your idea. It's the strategy is this. Do you agree with that? It's interesting. Um, I, I talk a lot about, oh, you, you, you read a lot about product people will say no more than they say yes uh, and they should uh, but it doesn't have to be a no sometimes a no is exactly the right thing to do and it saves a lot of time but sometimes you don't know if it's a no yet but you kind of need to say no if that makes sense um, so I'll often say well it doesn't have to be a no it could be a not yet and we can explain why it's a not yet or it could be a yes if so yeah we could do that if you can convince this senior stakeholder here to let go of what they want because I can't let them make them let go of that. But if you can, happy days. Or yes, if you can give me the budget to magically increase my team by double. Or yes, if you can convince my therapist to... I don't know, I think I... After all that, talking my, I think I've talked myself around to resilience. Really good points there. Um, I think, thank you very much. I think to ruthlessness, resilience, tough decision with context so really good um i'm just really conscious of time so we can probably whittle through another quick one um uh, and, and get that go so it's always a, a contentious one and i'm assuming that this is one that's going to roll over into the next oh, this pub. is a quick one <laughs> <laughs> um uh, how should product teams deal with senior management over involving themselves in roadmaps we were, looking, we were looking for a Star Wars reference. We, all these questions we looked at today, well, I, I did, and Jeff, Jeff was saying, can you find any kind of Star Wars metaphor in any of these things? And this, this, is, the, this, is, the <laughs> this is the closest one I got to. Um, 
with the emperor turning up in uh, at, at the end to oversee the building of the Death Star for, for the Star Wars fans amongst us. Um, um, how how do you deal with it? How do you deal with seeing it just just muscling in and involving themselves in the roadmap? Um, I welcome the we passion. Okay, I was going to say what we did in BT. We changed the name of the meeting. That's what we did. <laughs> was seriously, we found we had people in suits and ties turn up for something which clearly said in the diary like project roadmap meeting or project planning meeting, and people we didn't even know would turn up in the room wanting with pens and wanting to write stuff down and write dates down so in the end we just end up changing the name of the meeting <laughs> to something completely different and they didn't get it and they didn't turn up that's one word just don't invite them mm. but you yours were probably a lot more oh, sensible oh, I, I would welcome i would welcome the passion the fact that they're interested is a good starting point it says that your product's of interest it's got value it's got the attention of people that's a good thing the fact that they care enough to get involved that's a good starting point. I'd empathise with the position they're in. So there must be something going on that's putting the pressure on them that's causing them to do this. Um, and I would talk to them about options and potential consequences. Ultimately, they're just another stakeholder. They're a high power stakeholder, but they're just another stakeholder. So it's not really any different to any other form of stakeholder management. Are they high interest, high power? At the moment, they're high interest. But what would it take for them to be not high interest? How could I reduce the pressures on them that are driving this behavior? I, there's a phrase that Paul's probably very bored of me trotting out, but it's one that I try and live by, which is that every dysfunctional behavior is a symptom of an unmet need. So whenever I see anybody misbehaving or behaving weirdly or doing something that I think what the hell are they doing that for that's annoying all right it's not because they're a bad person it's because there's something going on that they are acting out all right it it's not about what they're doing they're not interfering is it interfering involving yourself. involving they're not involving themselves because they want to get involved that's a symptom of something else all right it could be control Perhaps they're the founders. I've seen lots of situations like that where the founders just can't let go of their pet products or whatever. Um, and so they're, they're oh, well, I'm losing a bit of control, all subconsciously. So how could we give them some other type of control and then this type of control is no longer necessary? It could be pressure and other types of pressure from stakeholders. How could we reduce the pressure on those from those stakeholders on that, on that senior manager? So I, I, I probably wouldn't address the problem that directly I'd probably address it with curiosity mm. and empathy um, and assume that they want a positive outcome and they might be unaware of the consequences of their actions. But being able to get those consequences across to that person without it feeling like an attack or a judgment on them. That's, again, coming back to that sort of psychology, psycholo psychological skill set um, and what you might call emotional intelligence and relationships and that kind of stuff, which I think is a big part of what I see separates the really, really effective product owners from the people who can apply the frameworks uh, and you know, apply the, the, the mathematical mm. formulas to the prioritization and do the ROI, but actually dealing with the people involved and, and the politics involved, yeah. that sort of sets them apart. Coaching skills, co with things that we both 
do a lot of is coaching skills for product owners and product managers is learning how to you know to tap into why is what what's motivating that person to do that thing is the person who asked this question still here no okay because we can't get any more context um yeah and just the other thing to try and give you some practical things to, to try and do is just be careful i suppose about what documentation or what reporting tools that you're throwing out there is that is that giving the right message is that is that causing the involvement so it might be things that you're doing that you're that 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 the, or that the the teams are doing that are causing that alarm which might ne not necessarily um be true or be worth the involvement is your question no i wanted to say <laughs> why is it bad to have management involved because I think this makes them um, more uh, tangible or mere mortals that they actually care. Yeah. Because you can have management standing in their ivory tower or glass tower, whatever, <laughs> and just look at some numbers on a paper and then, yeah, do whatever. And then the product doesn't work. You go live and you'll be like, oh, but you just lost a million pounds. So bye. Mm. I, th I, th I, th I think that's a great starting point to think I welcome your interest, I welcome your passion. I think where, again, only from my experience, and this is me interpreting the question, is quite often that, that ends up being an undermining of the product owner's decision. Mm. So I've made the decision around this roadmap, for example, and then the senior leader comes in and says, no, 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 we want this now. I said, well, I've just changed, I've, just, I've communicated this, I've put these things in place, and you're, you know, seagull swooping in, shitting on my roadmap and buggering off again. And that I see that a lot, so that uh, might be an incorrect assumption behind the question, but the um, question suggests over over involving. But I think your that, general principle yeah. of you know it, it should be a good thing, and it could be a good even in that situation it could be a good thing. It could be very reassuring for you as a product person that you know you've got support, you've got help, you've got people around you that are there to um, you know, help you make a better decision. Maybe there are some good sides to this. Okay, so if they have overruled, then you can kind of abdicate a little bit of responsibility when the shit hits the fan. Yeah. Now, it's unlikely that they will take responsibility and they will probably have Teflon suit on. So and shit rolls downhill and all that. But there is an element of, well, okay, if that's what you want to do. Yeah. Uh I see a quite a few people throw their toys out the pram and say, you know, if you're not going to empower me, then all right, you do it. See you later. Um, uh, there's also an element of, again, going back to this psychology side of things, people are hardwired to do things for people if they've done something for them. So it's sort of a reciprocation. And you'll be aware of that. You offer a free trial. People, are, you know, a certain number of them will, will, will take up with it. And so if is this a hill I really want to die on? Mm. You know, what they're asking for is actually a good thing. It's inconvenient for me. It might even be a little bit embarrassing for me, but it's still a good thing. If I let this one slide, maybe I've got some goodwill in the bank that when I really need to stand up to them, they'll take it. On the other hand, I've set a precedent. So it's reading the situation, reading the room, reading that relationship. Um, <coughs> should, the, uh, should the product manager already know the views of senior management as a stakeholder? I mean... It's a good Shouldn't point. Factored that into the roadmap in the first place. It's a good point. Yeah, unless unless they're a sociopath as well, they they just completely change. They say you want tell you one thing one day, and then come in and tell you something. I've had that happen to me before. 
of a, a product manager completely come after sprint planning, the day after sprint planning, came in and totally overrolled what the, what they just told us the day before, but and just said, it's, I made a bad call yesterday. It's just, this is what we need to do today. Or it could be that they're in their glass tower and they haven't responded to any of our messages or invites, and then suddenly someone sends them an email that speak, spikes their spidey sense and they're they're off down straight away. And my father-in-law's amazing at, at doing things like that not in a intervening way but he will get senior stakeholders in organizations he will somehow manage to light a fire up their ass and they will go in and intervene and, and respond straight away and they i know he's he's networked and stuff so he will just email the ceo of this company and suddenly the product roadmap's changed and it, that's only because a friend of the ceo has said something that's all it is. CEO doesn't care. He just owes this guy a favor or he's paying for his next girlfriend, whatever it is. And think, oh, okay, is this a hill I want to die on? Is this worth sabotaging my career over? But also I think this notion of roadmaps are written in stone has to really shift it because priorities change. It has, for example, happened to me in many situations whereby I had those agreements and had conversations way, way before what that picture looks like in the next three months. But something comes from the left side that changes the whole you know, picture. Mm. Um, and so I think it's, this question is interesting because I think it's also, ma as, a project ma as a product manager, you are also need to manage up as well as you know, uh, sort of having the signaling from senior management is critical because after all, they are senior, they have different responsibilities. And so it's quite provocative, <laughs> this question, because, <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, it's, it's the notion of roadmaps too, needs to, you know, are not written in stone, things should change, they must change, and therefore we also have to be equipping ourselves to think that, yeah, that could also be mm. a possibility. I think I think you're right, and I, I, I'm probably actually just a victim of my own bias, perhaps even my own pettiness. So putting myself in this position, if something changed in the market, or a new competitor launched, or something like that, I think okay, that's something I need to pivot against. I need to do that, and I actually want to do that because I can see the rationale in it. If I don't think there's real logic behind it then my shutters go up almost and I start, I'm almost willing to cut my nose off to spite my face because you're not helping. You should be helping. You should be on my side here of all the other things that could be going on, of all the other complexity and unknowns. You shouldn't be one of my problems. And I'm pointing at my senior manager here, right? not Jamie. <laughs> all right. And so I kind of get a little bit petty about that and logic can go out and the emotion can drive my decision rather than my logic. Again, this is where it comes back to that emotional intelligence, that self-awareness, being able to take yourself out and think, hold on a minute, what's, what's a positive interpretation of what's going on here? And that's hard. In the moment, it's hard. Can I just get a huge round of applause, please, for Paul and Jeff? Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Jedi Masters, right? Um, but yeah, thank you very much, guys. Really appreciate that. Um, really great to see so many familiar faces, but also great to see so many new then as well. I'll have a good evening. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you.